We're starting a five-part series both in this room and in many of our life groups, if not all of them. And it's on the vision of the church. And I thought we'd take a moment and just reflect on the vision as it's coming up on the screen. This is who we are and what we believe Christ has called us to do and what we believe Christ is going to hold us accountable. Meadowbrook seeks to connect people to Christ and his church, to grow them as disciples, to be disciplers, and equip them to serve through missions, ministry, and worship, all to the glory of God. That's our purpose. So we want to dive into that for about five weeks and make sure that we understand who we are, what we're called to do, and how we're called to do it well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hold your word and read it, to meditate on it, and then act on it with your grace. I pray that you would help us in this, in this hour to do that and to do it well. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. It's where we're going to be in the first chapter. We're going to focus in on verse 14 today. John chapter 1, verse 14. For those of you who are watching on our streaming services, we recognize we lost some audio there for a little while. I'm thankful that that's now caught up, and thank you for your patience. If you're a guest of ours, what a pleasure that you have joined us in worship today. There's a connection card in the seat in front of you if you would take the opportunity to fill that out. And just hand it to one of those folks out at Connections, I guess Connections. We would love to have some information from you to be able to pray for you by name and pass along a free gift to you. If you're giving your contribution today, as Kay and I have given online, some of us do it here in this room. Uh, there are boxes available at the back of the room, and that would be a good opportunity for you to do that. Last week, I was sitting on the back porch of a friend, a church member, uh, someone that I just wanted to talk to and pray with because his wife was sick and not doing very well. It reminded me that a, a couple of weeks before that, I was in the living room of one of our church members who is facing terminal conditions, and the doctors said to him that he was running out of options and time was going to run its course in his life. And although the circumstances vary uh, periodically, that is what I do. Engage people in conversation that have faced very difficult experiences. Maybe sin has brought great catastrophic circumstances to their life, consequences. Maybe it's the harsh realities of people, relationships, jobs that fracture finances that change, health that goes away. I, I've been in those situations. You've been in those situations with people, and you probably minister like I have, because in all those places where there is sickness and loss and tragedy, the conversation for me among Christians always moves in a singular track. It always moves to the same place. When sickness unexpectedly arrives and Death suddenly intrudes, and when sorrow rolls in and washes over what was once a happy home, the Christian conversation moves to the hope and the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. And they should. It moves to a day in which there is hope and promise when sickness and sin and sorrow and death will be no more. A day in which God would dwell forever with his people 
and wipe away every tear from our eyes. A day in which Revelation 21 says, and death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning, no crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. The conversation moves there because that is our hope. We often are reminded that we live in a broken and blighted world. However, Jesus offers us peace and joy through relationship and fellowship with him in a future home with him where we will dwell with him and he with us in a perfect and glorious kingdom. John writes of that day, a day when mourning and crying will be no more, where pain will forever be gone. It's a day for which the former things have passed away. John declares that grand promise to us. And God will destroy everything that is related to sin and every subsequent sin and every cursed thing that is unholy and broken. God will destroy it all and make all things new. To be clear, God will destroy everything that is blighted, tainted, spoiled, and plagued in this creation, and God will make all things new, and in that day and forever, it will not be touched by sin again. We long for that day. The first two pages of the Bible and the last two pages of the Bible are very much alike. They tell of the beauty of God and the beauty of God's creation and the perfect order in which he created it and he will recreate it. It's a fantastic view of the handiwork of God that is untouched by sin. That's God's glory. God expresses it well when he proclaims in Genesis as he's just reflecting back on all that he created. It is very good. The beginning and the end of the Bible are very similar. And the pages in between reveal the sin of mankind and the cataclysmic effect on creation and God's wonderful plan of redemption, which is the gospel. In the gospel of John reveals God's amazing provision of grace. He reveals that while you and I were tragically sinning against God, rebelling against him. God was a loving and affectionate God who is reaching down to us in the midst of all of that sin, providing forgiveness and a way back to glory, a way back to perfection. The Gospel of John reveals God's amazing provision of grace. Some might ask, well, where is God in the midst of the world when there is pain and suffering and sorrow and death and disease, where is God in the midst of all of that? And I can tell you where God is. With certainty, I can tell you that God has come to dwell among us and experience all of that pain and suffering and tragedy right alongside of us. And then he victoriously was triumphant over every aspect of that which is broken that you and I experience, including death, when he resurrected from the grave. And now he graciously provides for us a way in which we can have and experience righteousness and glory in his kingdom, spiritually today and physically one day in the future. He gives us eternal life and a glorious, perfected creation for all those who trust in him as Savior and Lord. The people of the world need that message of hope. The people of the world need the gospel, and God has entrusted that gospel to us for you and me to share it with the world. 
John writes it in summary form in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to just break apart with you for a moment and just highlight some of the great truths that come from that singular verse. First, Jesus is God, the eternal creator who became human. John wants us to understand the wondrous truth of Jesus that he is altogether God and altogether man. Now there's a word that uh, is used in this passage for the translation of the word word that is very important. There's a couple of words that John could have used in the Greek New Testament for the word translated word. One is rhema, and it is a specific word. If you said, what word did you just say? You would be asking me about rhema. It's a very specific understanding of what was said in a word. But he doesn't use that word to say that Jesus is the word. He uses another. He uses logos. Logos is different because it is the message being communicated. It's much broader. It's a term that helps us to understand Whereas Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, he is God's revelation to mankind. He is God's message to mankind. He writes in chapter 1 that Jesus is referring, uh, being referred to as Logos, meaning that he is the message and manner in which God is communicating to the world. Now, if we took time to read all of the chapter, we would learn that Jesus is the pre-existing God that he has forever been and forever will be. He was with God in the beginning, that he is very active in creation. In fact, there's not anything that is created that was not created except by Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is the light and life of the world such that darkness can never extinguish it. What a glorious truth about Jesus. But John wants us to know as well that Jesus is God and he is the revelation of God. He is the message of God. He has come to humanity to share with us the revelation of God, to make God known. The fact that he is human does not diminish his divinity in the least. In fact, I believe that it heightens the reality that God is in Christ and Christ is God. Christ taking on humanity is perhaps the most profound truth that we find about Christ our Lord in the scriptures. As John MacArthur notes in his study Bible, many of you have that Bible. He says it indicates that the infinite has become finite, that the eternal has conformed to time, the invisible became visible, the supernatural one reduces himself to the natural. And that is all amazing that God would be able to do that. The eternal word, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. And he came to specifically reveal God's message to us, offering salvation to us. So God, the eternal one, became man in flesh, and that's Jesus. The second thing that John wants us to recognize is that Jesus dwells among us. And the word for dwelling among us is one that's describing that of a tent. It would be as if in our modern vernacular saying Jesus camped among us. He chose to dwell among us. 
specifically using a word for a temporary dwelling. Jesus temporarily dwelt with us. And of course, that is the picture of the first advent, isn't it? A tent is not like your house. A tent is about as humble as you can get. If you're going to dwell somewhere, dwelling in a tent is a humble dwelling. And it's meant to be temporary. It's not meant to be permanent. That is the first advent, where Jesus came in a temporary way. And he came in a humble way. But I can tell you in his second advent, it won't be temporary and it won't be humble. It'll be glorious and it'll be majestic and it'll be wondrous. But John uses that word very specifically, which takes us back in our thoughts about Israel dwelling in the wilderness, moving on their way to a promise that God had given to them, and God being in a tent, the tabernacle, a very temporary dwelling place. That tent, by the way, was not very spectacular. In fact, there was no glory, no majesty among the tent. It's not like the, uh, the temple that was later built, especially Solomon's temple, which was glorious, overlaid with gold and shimmered from miles away. You would see it. The tabernacle wasn't like that. It was about as dull of a dwelling as you could get if you were God. The outer appearance of that tabernacle wasn't very remarkable, but the majesty and the glory was internal. And so it was with Jesus. And the prophet said it would be this way, that Jesus would have no outward appearance that would make people want to be drawn to him. The drawing wasn't from the outside. The glory was internal. The majesty and the wonder and the glory of God was within Christ Jesus. And we know from the tabernacle, Moses was allowed by God to come into that tabernacle and speak to God as friends speak face to face. But nobody else was allowed to do that. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus came to tabernacle with us, to dwell with us, to have personal conversation with anyone who would have personal conversation with him. Jesus came to reveal the message, the logos of God, the word of God, and he did so in a very personal way. So God in his loving nature was drawing near to us when Jesus came to make himself known and to make the message of God clear to all of mankind, God was dwelling with us in Christ. John helps us to recognize as well that Jesus is God's glory. I've been doing this for a, a number of years, about 27 years, being a student of the Bible and proclaiming the teaching of the Bible. And I can tell you glory is one of those descriptors of God that my feeble brain cannot wrap around. I just can't quite get the essence of that word. It's so undeniable in its uh, grandness. The grandeur of the glory of God can just not be placed in words. It's, it's so hard to even dwell on and think about, and then to utter it is even more difficult. The Bible foretells that throughout eternity, God's glory is never exhausted. God's glory is never diminished in the slightest bit. You and I don't understand that. Everything we have dwindles. Everything sort of goes away. It breaks down, but not God's glory. It always has been and always will be and forever will be the same. Never extinguished, never diminished 
His glory is so fantastically brilliant that there will be no need for any external source of light throughout the vastness of the universe and throughout heaven as well. No need for any other source of light because God's glory is so filling and so brilliant. God's glory is so much more than the essence of light, though. God's glory is his excellence and his perfection. It is who he is. He is excellent and he is perfect. From the beginning to the end, Jesus lived his life revealing the excellence and the perfection of God his authority and power and righteousness and teaching and compassion are all expressions of God's glory. His nature was glorious too. When you think about the nature of the fullness of Christ, you think about all the fruit of the Spirit perfectly manifest in Christ Jesus, and you find his glory there. You find Jesus gloriously displaying God's character of grace and goodness and mercy and wisdom and on and on and on. You'll find the perfect glory of Christ demonstrated among mankind. If someone wants to know what God is like, they only have to look to Jesus for the full glory of God was expressed in him. In fact, Paul writes it very specifically in Colossians 4, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You want to know what Jesus is like? Read the Bible. You want to know what God is like? Read about Jesus. You want to know the glory of God? Be in a relationship with Christ. He'll share his glory with you. Then Paul, uh, excuse me, John says that Jesus is the fullness of God's grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. John understood Jesus to be God's grace and truth overflowing to us. In fact, that's the word that he uses in the Greek New Testament, play race. It means to be so full, brimming full. And the concept is to be so full, brimming full, that that which he shares just continues. It doesn't diminish at all. That grace and truth just continues over and over I think we ought to let that reality settle in for a minute just to think about the fullness of that, that God's grace and truth shared with us by Jesus Christ is continuously brimming in our lives. Never diminished, never depleted, never reduced. It's always brimming, grace and truth in Christ. So well-sourced is the nature of God's grace and truth in Jesus that it just continues to overflow. Kay and I have a favorite place uh, at our home. Uh, it's a small spring on the land. And the water surfaces from the ground about 100 feet up, a little small mountain that we own. And that water surfacing there begins to pool, and then it forms a small brook that runs down the hill and towards the pond. At the head of that spring, there remains a remnant of a pool that was actually created by a couple of families they took rock decades ago and um, made a, a dam structure with mud. And uh, that structure is still partly in place to provide a pool. And at the bottom of that little pool was a metal uh, pipe that ran for hundreds and hundreds of feet through the property and down the next neighbor's property and down the hill to the next street where it serviced for a couple of families, their homes for water. Now that pipe remnant is still there, and part of that pool 
uh, dam is still there. Uh, it doesn't source homes anymore, but that spring is still flowing. In fact, when it gets dry, I'll go up there in the dog days of summer just to see if it's still flowing. And I've never, ever seen a day that that spring's not flowing. In the heat of the summer, I'm talking about August and September, when everything else is turning kind of dry, turning brown, you go in and around the head of that spring and down the brook, and it is just lush green ferns still doing well, and all the native plants just thriving. That spring provides life because it never stops flowing. That's the word that John uses when he says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's talking about a wellspring of grace and truth that just does not stop flowing. It provides the resources that people need, the truth that people need. That's a good illustration, isn't it, of grace and truth. That it's an unending flow that provides abundantly and wonderfully for us, and it helps us to thrive. God's grace is full. It's not lacking, and it is never diminishing for the saint. It doesn't lack for the sinner either. Listen, when you think, I've sinned too far to ever be drawn near to God, God's grace is full, and God's truth is full in Christ Jesus. There doesn't come a limit where he says to a sinner, I am not going to extend grace to you. He is always extending grace in this season of grace. Now, there'll be a time in the future where it will not be given anymore, but right now, God's grace and God's truth is being extended in full measure. If you're going to come to Christ, now's the time to do it. Now's the time to come while he is full of grace and full of truth for you. And it's the same way for saints. God's grace and God's truth is a continuous wellspring for us. It's not diminishing. No matter how many people are pulling from it, God's grace is continuous. It, it is a, a wellspring that is not ending. For from him, the fullness of Christ has been given. Look what he says in John 1.16. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. As if God's grace wasn't enough, he says, I'm going to give grace Upon grace, I, I just want us to let that settle. It's hard to capture the fullness of that good news, but let it settle that God's love and God's goodness to us is overwhelming. We think that it might reach a limit at some point in our lives, like, like God is thinking like we think in a sinful way. I mean, there are times when you and I might say, maybe we don't say it, we think it, I've had it. That's it. I'm not giving you any more. I'm done. We, we come to those points in our lives when we're in the flesh. And we sort of put that on God. But here's what he's saying. God gives grace upon grace. God never comes to that point in your life where he says, I've had it with you. I'm done with you. I'm not giving you any more. That's not our God. God says, I am full of grace, I'm brimming with grace, and I'm going to give grace upon grace. What a treasure for us when we think about the magnitude of that. That you might even think, 
you know, God has bigger and better and other people that he ought to be attending to and caring for besides me. I want you to hear this, that God's wellspring of grace is ever flowing no matter how many people are drawing from it or needing it. God gives it grace upon grace to all people who find themselves in need. It's refreshing, isn't it, that God has made provision and supplied our every need of grace through Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, come to him. Come to him in his grace and receive his goodness. Now, as you receive his grace, he gives it in such measure that you can be gracious to other people. In fact, the more grace you give to other people, the more grace God will give to you. You won't be able to outgive him. So as you receive grace, give grace, and as you give grace, he's already given you more. That's God's goodness in life for us. That's the blessed life. It's a rhythm in which God is flowing his grace into us. We freely flow it to other people. And even as we are flowing it out, God continues to supply us with more. The more we understand God's grace and trust in him, the more gracious we'll be to other people. But it's not just that he's full of grace, but he's full of grace and truth. Jesus is replete with truth. He is expressing God's righteous demands, that's truth. And he's expressing the reality of our living, that's truth. And Jesus is giving us that in full. Now that's why grace and truth are partnered in the gospel. That's why salvation has both grace and truth. It's not just about God's grace, but it's about its truth as well. What his demands are of us and the reality of our inability to keep his demands. Jesus is full of both of those. He's communicating those at all times, and we read about that in his word. Now, don't be like some who treasure God's grace without accepting and submitting to his truth. And don't be like others who are legalistically trying to prove God's truth in their life without being dependent upon his grace. Be full of grace and truth that Christ has given to you. So I'd say, come and live in Christ, for he is God, and he is God's message. He is God's revelation. He is dwelling with us, and he is full of grace and truth. Come to him. If you haven't come to him, I'm inviting you to do so today, to trust in him by faith. And as we trust in him, let's communicate that which we trust. Now, I started this message to tell you that God's promises and hope are found in Christ. As the Bible begins with perfection, it ends with perfection, and in between is God's remedy for our sin, right? Now, the gospel message is communicated in this way. It's on the screen. It's an illustration. It's one we use regularly. By God's design, everything was perfect. Everything was glorious. That was the way Genesis began. God says it's good. Now, I'll let you know everything is moving to that again. God is moving all things to that again. That doesn't mean all people are going to be privy to that, but he is moving us to that. And in between in the Bible, we find God's remedy for us who have broken, all of us who have broken God's perfect creation. We have brought sin into his holy, glorious creation. And that brokenness is evident in our life 
the fact that you and I are dealing with a virus that is rampant all over the world is part of the brokenness, the curse of creation. The fact that brokenness is in relationship and brokenness is in your body and brokenness is in our, our lives is because of sin. And we try to do things to overcome that brokenness. We try to fix things on our own or medicate on our own or distract in some ways on our own to act as if this isn't as bad as it is. It all falls desperately short, doesn't it? Which is the reason why Christ is the remedy, not us, not religion, not a better way of living. Christ alone is the only way. He's full of grace and truth. Christ came to dwell among us, to dwell the righteous, to dwell among the unrighteous. The one who is glorious to live in a land that is cursed, and he experienced all the brokenness of mankind, tempted in every way, but yet he never sinned. And he did that because he was manifesting the message, he was revealing the message of God to all of mankind, what the requirements would be, that's truth, and God's grace that would be on the cross where he who knew no sin would take our sin upon himself that we might have the righteousness of God in him and on that cross he died a suffering death in our stead and he was placed in the ground in a grave but on the third day he was resurrected triumphantly and he's continued to minister thereafter, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is coming again. My faith and trust is in him, that he is the one who can take my sin upon himself, that I might receive God's forgiveness, and I might have the credit of his righteousness. And that's what you're believing and trusting in as well. And when we believe and trust, repenting of our sinful ways and the good news of Christ Jesus, then we recover and we pursue the glory of Christ again. We do it in a spiritual way in his kingdom today, but my friends, he is going to make all things new in the future very physically. That's the gospel message. That's what you and I are to trust and to treasure and to share with other people. It's part of who we are at Meadowbrook and what we do. We receive God's gospel and we share God's gospel. And I want to invite us to do that very actively in 2021. Now, if you're in the room or you're watching online and you've yet to trust in Christ, in these next few moments, I'm praying that you'll do so. And for those of us who are trusting in Christ, I pray that this will be a new commitment to share that gospel with other people. The more brokenness the world experiences, the more ready they are for the hope that is in Christ Jesus. For the darkness of the world really can see the glorious light of truth when we live it before them. Let's pray together. In this moment, Lord, I pray for those who are understanding the plight of mankind and the remedy that you have afforded in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, by your grace, that they will act in faith, trusting Jesus, believing in you who sent your Son, and that they would repent of their ways and turn and begin to walk step by step in Jesus, in his truth and grace. 
And I pray, Lord, that this would be the day of a new beginning for them. The old would pass away and all things would become new. And for those of us, Lord, who have trusted your gospel, trusted that good news, trusted you who provided it for us through Christ your Son, I pray that that message would ring constantly from us and that it would be the grand news for our friends, family, neighbor, co-worker, and all people around the world. Let us be great influencers of the gospel as we connect people to Christ by his truth and grace. I pray this in his name.